Welcome to the Dream Job System, the only podcast that provides proven tangible strategies to help you land a job you love without traditional experience and without applying online. Get ready to level up your job search with your host, Austin Belsack. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Dream Job System podcast. I'm your host, Austin Belsack, and today we're back with our monthly Ask Austin Anything episode. Now, This episode was for November. That's what it's labeled as, but obviously it's December 1st. So last week got a little out of hand. We had Thanksgiving, which was a blast. We spent it with Lily's family. Uh, Nolan got to hang out with his grandparents and even his great-grandmother, which was totally amazing. And then we went to a wedding for a friend, a dear friend in Pennsylvania. It was an absolute blast. But between all of those things, I just didn't have time to record the episode in time to get it out on the last day of November. Thus, here we are with it coming out on the first day of December. So I appreciate you bearing with me. We'll have another Ask Austin Anything at the end of December as well, maybe a little New Year's episode edition. So as always, if you have any questions that you want me to answer, feel free to send them to me using any of the options in the show notes. You can text them to me. You can email them to me. Just make sure that you mention it's for this specific episode, and I'll see if I can get you some answers. So for this episode, we have five awesome questions coming your way, and we're going to cover everything from getting started in in terms of taking the first steps with a business. We're going to talk about moving from an individual contributor to a management role. We're going to talk about increasing visibility on LinkedIn. We're even going to talk about some of my favorite pizza. So without further ado, let's dive in. Our first question comes from Matt, who asked, when you started planning Cultivated Culture, what were some of the things that you did to get started? For example, what was your process for creating and starting your website? So this is a great question because there are a lot of people out there who want to start their own businesses, but it's really hard to know the best way to get started. And obviously, our goal is to have a linear trajectory as best we can, right? We want to make sure that we take the right steps at the very beginning. And there's also so much information out there. It can be kind of overwhelming. There's so many people sharing so many different ways or methods or pieces of advice that you should be using to start your business. And everybody claims that theirs is the best. And I've tried a lot of those things. So I can share the stuff that worked specifically and what you should do. And that really is starting with what I would consider to be a minimum viable product or a minimum viable idea. And what I mean by that is you don't want to bite off more than you can chew at the beginning. You don't want to get too broad or make things too complex. Instead, the very best thing that you can do is have an incredibly specific idea and work to validate that specific idea in and of itself. So the big mistake that a lot of people make is, one, they don't have clarity on the specific idea that they want to get out there. And instead, they just say, well, I think that there's a market potentially for this general thing. So let me try to test that out. The other thing that people do is they focus on all of the non-business aspects of the business. And so what I mean by that is they focus on things like creating a beautiful website or LLCing their business or buying business cards or doing all this stuff. And none of that really goes into actually validating your idea or actually building an audience or generating revenue. And those are all of the things that really matter when you're starting a business. So I did know some of that going in here. And what I really tried to do was be as lean as possible and really focus on my specific idea. So essentially what happened here was to provide the full context, I had always wanted to start my own business. I'd always wanted to be an entrepreneur, but I could never come up with an idea. I was always trying to go too far, trying to create the next 
Facebook or the next cool SaaS company or the next cool website or platform or whatever it was. And I didn't really just say, okay, what am I good at that, you know, I could offer to other people? And so this idea almost hit me in the face because when I got my job at Microsoft, I'd come from my non-traditional background, right? A lot of people from college knew that I didn't have good grades, that I didn't really have a direction, you know, that I wasn't quite, you know, the most overachieving person out there. But here I was now working for Microsoft. So I actually had a lot of people from college reach out to me and ask me how I did it. And after, you know, the 20th person or so had pinged me on LinkedIn or sent me an email and asked about, you know, the the journey and the steps that I had taken, that little alarm in my brain was going off saying, hey, there might be something here. So rather than just going in full bore, essentially what I said was, well, let me test this out. Let me take this idea and turn it into what I would consider to be a minimum viable product. And essentially to define that, what that means is you do the bare minimum that you can do to put something together and launch it and see if that works. And the reason why that's really effective is because One, it saves you a lot of money and it saves you a lot of time. So instead of just going out and building this massive, beautiful website that costs you a ton of money and will take a ton of time to put together, instead, you kind of put put together a bare bones website and you really focus on the content and the value. And that's important because if the value shines through, even though the rest of the stuff isn't as high quality as it potentially could be, that probably means that you're onto something. So that's exactly what happened here. So I put together a website 100% by myself. I used WordPress as a platform. WordPress is awesome because it creates a user-friendly experience that allows you to put together a website. Squarespace wasn't around when I started, but it is now, and it has great tools that you can use to do this. And I would say it's probably a bit more user-friendly than WordPress. But I put together a site on WordPress. I designed the whole thing myself. I had a pre-built theme that I spent like a hundred bucks on. I bought my hosting for, I think like 20 bucks or 30 bucks or something like that. And then what I did was I took my entire job search process and philosophy and I put it all into this massive blog post. And that really was the only thing on the site. So if you went to cultivatedculture.com when I started the site, you would see this logo that I made myself, which is really, really terrifying. When I look back at it, it was not great. You'll see this color scheme that seems really, really dated and not like a designer put it together. You'll see a very simplistic website. It was literally just the blog post and then like a little sidebar that said, you know, archives and search and this other stuff. And it was incredibly bare bones. But I had all of the content, all of the information, all the strategies that I put together from my job search in this massive blog post. I think it was about 5,000 words. And so what I ended up doing was taking that and one, I sent it to all of the people moving forward that asked me for advice and I looked for their feedback, but then I started to do some promotion around it. And so specifically for for me, what I did was I, I used this strategy where I went and found other articles that were similar. So what I would do is I would look for other people who had written about their experience landing jobs at great companies. And then I used a tool called BuzzSumo to drop the links from those articles in and see who shared them on Twitter or other social platforms. And then what I would do is I would sort by the number of followers and then I would reach out to every single person who had shared a similar article and basically say, hey, I saw that you shared this similar article. 
you know, I put together one that walked through my job search journey from healthcare to Microsoft. It has all of the tips and tactics. If you think it's valuable for your audience in a similar way that this other article was, I'd really appreciate, you know, you helping me spread the word, but if not, no worries. So I sent that to several hundred people, probably 300, 400 people. And I actually got a bunch of people to share that, whether it was on social media, whether it was in newsletters. And I was able to rack up 60,000 views on that blog post within the first 60 days. And then a lot of intake came in. A lot of people read the article and they reached out via the contact forum on the site. And they said, you know, hey, I read this. This is, you know, this has opened my eyes to a new way of job searching. Like, I'm so glad I found this. People started asking me questions, so on and so forth. And then what I started doing was taking calls with a lot of those people who had these questions. And I just talked to them to understand more about their situation. I talked to them to understand what their pain points were. I talked to them to understand what actions they'd taken in the past to try to solve for those pain points. I talked to them about what specific aspects of the article really resonated with them and which could use more clarity. And so I ended up talking to several hundred people because of that. And what this really did was two things for me. One, it validated that this idea was something worth investing in for two reasons. One, people who already had followings and platforms thought the content was good enough, thought the information was good enough to share. So that was the first checkbox. And then second, all of these people who read the article reached out to me and they said the same thing. So the people who would be my potential customers, my potential audience said that it resonated with them and they wanted to learn more. So the validation was in place there. But then second, through those conversations that I had with these people, I got to go so deep on the customer research that I really, really learned and understood everything about where my target audience was at in terms of their goals, in terms of their pain points and frustrations, the things that they'd done before, why those things hadn't worked, what resonated for my stuff, so on and so forth. And that's where the business started. So this whole thing was set up as a single page WordPress site with a little contact form and just one really big article Everything about it was low quality except for the content. And that is exactly how you should start the business. So I believe it was Reed Hoffman who said, if you feel comfortable with the product you're launching, you've launched it too late. And I totally agree. I think you should launch things early and try to get feedback as fast as you can and then iterate off of those things and then grow. So I actually didn't redesign my website until the business was three years old. And I actually didn't start paying people to put together tools or paying designers to help me make things look really nice or get some real branding behind my website until three years into the business. For the first three years, I did everything myself and it was not even close to the highest quality website out there in the career space. But I knew that because I was gaining traction in spite of that, that the idea itself was working. And if the idea itself is working, the money is gonna be there and that's gonna allow you to reinvest in all of those things that will bring your business up to more of a professional standard of quality, et cetera. So to recap that very long answer for you, Matt, at the end of the day, if you have an idea, what you should really try to do is create that minimum viable product and really get it out there with your audience and then try to learn from them and iterate from them. So you don't need a fancy website. You don't need business cards. You don't need to spend money on a designer. You don't need ads. You don't need all this stuff at the start. All you need is really, really high quality content that's focused very specifically on the idea that you're trying to share. And when you do that, you're gonna know right out of the gate whether this idea is worth investing in or whether it's not worth investing in. And both of those things are very, very valuable. So I hope that answers your question.
Our next question comes from Alex, who is asking, how does an individual contributor move into a management role, whether internally or externally, with little to no experience? So this is one of the trickier things to do in your career, because all of these companies who are hiring for management positions want people who already have management experience, but it's incredibly hard to get management experience unless you've already been in a manager role, right? So this is a bit different from our traditional setup where, you know, if you're trying to change industries and you're an individual contributor, you still have the same catch-22 where you need experience to get hired, but how do you get that experience without being hired in the first place? Well, you can actually go create that experience for yourself. But that's a little bit harder to do within the scope of a management role because most people aren't in a position to go hire folks and just say, okay, I'm going to manage these people on the side for my side hustle, right, or whatever it is. So we have to find different ways in the door. And there were really two paths to do this. One is easier, but it takes a longer period of time. And the second is harder. And even though it seems like it might be the shorter route, I actually don't think that it is. So it doesn't necessarily, the first one doesn't take a longer period of time. It just takes a long time in general. But the second one actually may take longer. So we'll start with the second one first. And that is really to just get involved in as many projects as you can where you take a bit of a management role. So if there's some sort of initiative or some sort of project going on at your company where there are a bunch of different teams coming together, if you can jump into a role where you're basically the point person, where everybody is coming to you and you're essentially managing that team, even for a short period of time in a project, that's going to be your best bet in terms of spinning up existing experience for a management role. Because then you can walk into these interviews or you can have on your resume, you know, the fact that, yes, you didn't have a manager title or manage a team for an entire year or in a formal capacity. But here was this initiative that you worked on with multiple teams and with, you know, people from your department where you were appointed to be the leader of the team and you oversaw X, Y, and Z things. And here were the awesome results that came from that. If you can do that, that is experience that you can spin up as management experience. And that can help you move into a role. The problem with that is that you're probably still gonna lose out to people who already have existing management experience. So this is still a really, really tough route to go. And that's why I'd actually recommend you choose the second channel here, which again is an easier path, but it still takes a long time. And that is essentially moving into an IC role at a company where you wanna be a manager and then making it your sole focus to get into a management role at that company. It's so much easier to move from individual contributor to manager within an existing company because people in these management roles, people who are hiring for the manager roles, they know you, they see your work, they know what you're capable of, they've seen you in those positions where you've managed or led a team on a small project or whatever it is. And you never know what can happen too. People can leave or there can be a restructure. And when those things happen, sometimes the individual contributors who are top performers are the ones who are slotted in for management roles. So this is far and away gonna be your best bet. So rather than sitting in your current company wanting to get out and wanting to go to another company and be a manager, I think what you should do is try to take more of a, a step in the direction of another individual contributor role and make sure that you're at a company where you wanna stay for a little while so that you can become a manager. Then once you start at that company, 
you obviously want to give it a couple of months, you know, three, four, five, six months where you prove that you're an awesome employee. You're checking all the boxes, you're exceeding expectations. Everybody knows you're reliable and you're a top performer. And then what you want to do is sit down with your manager and you want to make it very clear that your goal for the next role is to be in people management. And then you want to talk to them about the specific things you can do to get there. So the conversation should go a little bit like this, where you sit down and say, look, you know, this is my six month review or year end review. And I just want to create a path or a roadmap for where I want to go next at this company, because I always like thinking ahead. I like to have a goal to work towards. For me, my goal is to move into people management. I want to be doing what, you know, X person or Y person is doing. I really think that that is what I'm suited for. And that really plays to my strengths. And that's the next step I want to take in my career. So for the next year or so, I want to understand what specific projects I can take on or what specific actions or results you need to see for me to feel confident in recommending me for the next management position that opens up. And so what that does is it pushes your manager to work with you to come up with specific projects and specific goals and things that are actually objective criteria, boxes that you can check to say, hey, when we had that performance review, you said that if I did X, Y, and Z things, you would recommend me for this next management position and I've done all those things. So when a manager role opens up, I want to put my name in the hat for it. So you're setting expectations early, but you're also making sure that you're coming up with a concrete plan with your manager that you can follow to make sure that you're meeting all the qualifications and you're set up in a position to jump into that management role. And then once you have the manager title, you can take that anywhere. So if you're still not in love with this company, even though you thought you were when you started, if you jump into the manager role and you stay there for six months or so, then you can take that manager title pretty much anywhere else that you want to go because you have that formal title and that quote formal people management experience on your resume. So it's essentially a club that's hard to get into, but once you're in, it's really easy to move around. So that's what I would say. And I know that's not necessarily the most you know, backdoor way into something, which many of you are familiar with, uh, at least in terms of the advice that I give. But it truly is a bit of a different animal when you're moving from individual contributor to management. So that would be my recommendation is to get into an IC role at a company that you are interested in, and then make it very clear that you want to move into management there, get that role, and then you can either stay or you can decide to take that role somewhere else. Our next question comes from Gaurav, and he is asking, how do you increase visibility on LinkedIn so that more recruiters contact you during your job search? So there are a whole bunch of different ways that you can do this. And we've talked about profile optimization. We've talked about keywords, so on and so forth. But really, one of the best ways that you can build visibility that most other people aren't doing is by getting out there and actually engaging with folks who are in your target space. So we've talked about this a little bit before, but when we think about a network or an audience, that network or audience is typically an expansion of the contact or person or creator that's at the center of it. So to give you an example for me, you know, if you look at my background, I worked, I spent most of my career in technology, in sales and in New York. So most of my professional network before I started creating content around the job search and career space, 
most of my network mirrored who I was. They were people who worked in tech. They were people who worked in sales or client-facing role. And they were people who lived in New York because those are the people that I mostly interacted with in my career. And then once I started creating content in the job search, again, that became more of an expansion or my network and audience became an expansion of that. A lot of the people who follow me are also in the job search space, are also career coaches or content creators who focus in this specific area. And so what we want to do is find these people who are central hubs for the target space that you want to get into. And one of the easiest ways to do that is to get out there and just search for them on something like Google or Bing, or you can scroll scroll through your feed and look for those people to come up. So let's say that you want to get into the user experience field. You could go to Google and you could type in user experience influencers to follow on LinkedIn. And then what you're going to get is a whole list of people. And then you can click through their profiles and you can see who's posting content regularly, who has a pretty decent audience or following. And these are the people you want to connect with and engage with because what's going to happen is when you engage with them in a public way, you comment on their posts, et cetera, you're going to be getting in front of not only them, but everybody else who's in their network as well. Everybody else who is also in this user experience space. And this is going to create a lot of visibility for you within the target audience or space that you want to go. So what you're going to do is make a list of like 10 to 15 of those people and you're going to bookmark their post feed. And then every single day, what you're going to do is go in and you are going to leave a thoughtful comment on their most recent posts. And a thoughtful comment isn't something like love this or great share or whatever. LinkedIn actually released some data that showed that a comment with more than six words in it actually has greater reach than a comment with less than six words in it. So you wanna make sure that you're actually adding value. And what I mean by that is you wanna support the creator, you wanna tag them in your comment, you wanna reiterate a bit of what they said in the post, and then you wanna add your own value or experience in the comment. So this should be a couple sentences long. And the reason why this is important is because the value is the key here. The value is what's going to get you noticed by the creator. The value is also what's going to get you noticed by their audience, everybody who's looking at that post. And that's going to help people click on your profile. And when people click on your profile, if you've optimized it correctly, they should see all of the information that positions you as a strong candidate for, in this case, let's say a user experience designer role or whatever role that you're targeting. And that's going to lead to more people reaching out to you with interviews. So I absolutely love this strategy because most people aren't doing this. When we look at the data, only about 10% of people on LinkedIn are actually commenting and engaging. So you're already beating out 90% of the competition simply by doing this. And then on top of that, you're creating this method that you can use to manually drive views to your profile. And you're also illustrating your value. You're giving yourself an opportunity to prove your value in these comments so that people already know that you know your stuff, that you can bring value to this role when they reach out to you. And so you're basically attracting people. You're attracting roles. You're attracting opportunities versus crossing your fingers and just spraying applications out there and hoping that something works out. So that's probably the number one tip that I'd recommend. You obviously want to optimize your profile first. We have a bunch of content on that on the site. But once your profile is optimized, this is the thing that I would be showing up and doing every single day. I would be working on getting these comments out there. And again, you only need 10 to 15 of these people, 10 to 15 comments a day. That's not going to take you very long. So this is a great bang for your buck strategy. Our next question comes from Tom, who's asking what quote has had the most impact on your personal life philosophy? So this quote is one that comes from Twain, and it essentially goes, if you find yourself on the side of the majority, it's time to pause and reflect. 
And I really like this quote because so many of us fall into the trap of going with the flow, doing what we're supposed to do or what we're told to do or what everyone else is doing. And it's actually rooted in our psychology. There's this concept called social proof. And social proof is essentially the idea that what everybody else is doing is the right way to do things. And it can be helpful in a lot of situations. So this this term was actually coined by Robert Cialdini, who's a psychologist who's written one of my favorite books called Influence. There's another one he's written called Persuasion, which is fantastic. Both of them are amazing if you want to better understand how we as humans operate and how you can build better relationships. They're two of my favorite books. But he coined this term. And basically what he said was, it's helpful in many cases, right? If we sit down in a restaurant and we look around and we see everybody is eating with a fork and they're they're holding it a certain way, well, that probably means that using a fork and holding it a certain way is the best way to go about eating your food instead of trying to just stab it with the knife or eat it with the spoon or put it in your glass or any of these other options that are available on the table. So it can be helpful in those specific instances, but it can also be very unhelpful in the cases where everybody is doing something despite the fact that it's not the best way to do it. So the job search is a great example of this because 75% of people out there are using online applications as their primary method to get in the door for roles. But the data also tells us that online applications are one of the worst channels that you can use to try and win a job because the success rates are so low. So the problem is we look around and we see all of our friends are applying for jobs. Our college counselors tell us to apply for jobs. Our parents, our mentors, they tell us to apply online for jobs. When we go to LinkedIn or when we go to a company's career page, they have all of the pages focused on the online application. So All of this information is pointing us to the online application funnel when that's actually one of the worst ways that you can go in terms of where the hires are actually coming from. So the most important thing to do is look at your outcomes and say, okay, I'm doing this thing that everybody else is doing. I'm on the side of the majority. I'm going to pause and reflect on whether or not it's working. And if it is working, keep doing it, right? Like if you are eating with the fork and it's working and it's efficient and it makes sense, then keep doing it. You don't want to be a contrarian just for the sake of being a contrarian. We want to be productive and efficient and effective here. But if what you're doing isn't working, even if everybody else is doing it, you might want to consider another path. And this has helped me in so many areas. This helped me with the job search. My entire job search philosophy and system is based on this. But it also helped me as an entrepreneur. You know, when I started my business, I grew it doing things that a lot of other people weren't doing. I kind of went against the advice of what other people would tell me, whether it was my parents or other entrepreneurs or whatever, because I felt that playing to my strengths was the best way to grow my business. And that turned out to be the truth. But then once my business hit a certain point, I started trying to do the things that everybody else was doing. You know, I I got sucked into these activities and I got sucked into these groups and I got sucked into these commitments that everybody else was doing and that I felt like I should be doing because everybody else was doing them and they seemed to be successful. And then I took a moment to pause and say, why am I doing these things? Like, I don't, they don't feel good. I don't feel good doing them. They're not really generating results. Am I doing this because it's working for me or because everybody else is doing them? And the truth was, it was the latter. So I stopped doing many of those things. I went back to focusing on specifically what was working for me and my business ended up doubling the next year. So the biggest thing that you can do for anything in life is 
always take a moment to pause and reflect on why you're doing something. And if it's simply because other people are doing it, that's not a good reason to continue. Instead, you should focus on doing things because they work. And if they're not working, you should keep experimenting and keep testing and keep trying new things until you find the thing that works for you. So I love that question, Tom. Thank you so much. And then last but not least, Dennis is asking, what's your favorite pizza and drink to go along with it? So being from the New York area, this is a bit of a multifaceted answer. Um, There's a couple of great spots and we've lived in a bunch of different places. So what I'll say is far and away, the number one best pizza that I've ever had is at a place called Roberta's. It's out in Bushwick, which is in Brooklyn. It's about a 30 minute subway ride from the city. But if you are in New York and you can make that trip, it is 100% worth it. Roberta's is super awesome. They have a great setup, first and foremost. In the front, you walk in, there's a bunch of picnic tables. It's all wood-fired pizza. They have a little bar at the back. But then if you go in the warm weather, they actually have a whole outdoor space. They have a little tent with another bar, and then they have all this outdoor seating as well. It's a super awesome setup. They usually have great drinks, great beers. But the pizza that you need to get, which is not always on the menu, is called the Bee Sting. So the bee sting is essentially a regular pizza with soprasada, and it's drizzled in honey and chili oil. So it's got that like spicy sweet setup with a little bit of the pepperoni vibes as well. And it is absolutely fantastic. Honestly, all their pizzas are are incredible and top notch. So you can't go wrong. But the bee sting is my absolute favorite. Now, if you're still in Manhattan and you're looking for just a regular slice, it's really, really hard to beat Joe's Pizza. They have a spot in the West Village, and then they have a spot up on Broadway near Times Square, which was actually around the corner from the Microsoft office. So I did get caught uh, every now and then going over there for a slice in in the middle of the day or in the afternoon or something. But Joe's is fantastic if you're not going to make the trip to Roberta's. And then last, but certainly not least, if you're in Jersey City, there's a restaurant called Raza which actually was named by Pete Wells, who's this uh, renowned food critic for the New York Times. Pete Wells wrote an article that said the best pizza in New York is actually in New Jersey. And the restaurant he was talking about was Raza. And their pizza is fantastic. I still think Roberta's is better. I like Roberta's better. But Raza is absolutely worth a trip, especially if you're in New Jersey and you don't want to make the, the trip all the way into the city. So there's a little bit of a rundown, but obviously my favorite drink to go along with it is beer. Uh, it doesn't really matter what kind of beer it is. Beer always pairs well with pizza. And that is hands down one of my favorite meals. That is definitely a desert island meal for me. So Dennis, thank you for asking. And thank you all for listening. Uh, these were awesome questions. I had a blast chatting through all of them. And as always, if you want to ask me a question for the next Ask Austin Anything episode, which will be happening at the end of December, feel free to text me, email me, just send it over. Make sure you mention it's for this episode and I will try my best to include it and get you an answer. Outside of that, thank you as always for listening and we'll see you in the next episode of the podcast. 